Uh, my name is Pedro. I work at Octopus Sports. So we, this is our second time doing this lecture, and the last time it was full house, like today. So we think there's a high popular demand for um, for this knowledge, and we are very honored to have Peter Diganji here. Um, he has vast knowledge around, you know, Ottawa River watershed. He has been doing more than 30 years of research with the Gunquins, uh, um, Gunquins Nation Secretariate. So. Um, I guess most of you read, already read his bio on the website, so I won't read from his bio. Um, I'll just pass the mic to him so we can get the lecture going. Uh, just as mentioned, there's an audio recording, so if you don't feel like to take notes, there will be audio available afterwards, but I encourage you to take notes um, so you kind of remember it. And then I'll also encourage you to share what you learned today with your, uh, your, your friends, your family, and colleagues. I think it's a very important issue, and we should know something about it. Okay, um, let's welcome Peter. Thanks. Well, thank you, Pijou, and welcome, everyone. I'm glad to be here today. So, as Pijou said, my name is Peter Diganji, and welcome here tonight. Um, I, I, I've worked with Aboriginal communities since the late 1970s mostly on research and policy work and advocacy. I currently, uh, for about almost the past 20 years, I've been working with the Algonquin Nation Secretariat uh, as director of, of research and policy, and that's a, a tribal council, uh, and I'll explain a bit more about that later. What we're here tonight to hear about is the history of the Ottawa River watershed, the human history. Um, it's going to cover a number of different things. Last time I started with the Ice Age and I was told to move up the timelines a bit. So we'll knock off the first 10 or 15,000 years and start uh, a bit closer to today. And uh, what I'd like to do is, is give a little bit of the history of the river itself. Uh, a lot of history of the Algonquin people in particular this is their territory, but also um, vignettes or little snapshots of other important aspects of, of the history of the Ottawa Valley, including lumbering and hydro development. And uh, what I'd like to do towards the end is focus on the 20th century recent court cases, land claims issue. I know in the last meeting there were questions about land claims and there were also questions about um, the, the development on, at the Shawgir Falls. So, I'll, uh, so I'll, I'll try and speak briefly to that. There will be time at the end for questions and answers, so certainly if you do have any questions, just keep track of them, and when I'm done, I'd, I'd be pleased to, to, to do what I can to answer them. Um, some of the things you may hear tonight, you may already know. I, I see there's many of you here, you probably have many different kinds of experience. So I, I apologize in advance if I'm repeating anything you might already know or going everything over something that might be self-evident. Here we have a map uh, that's produced by the Ottawa River Management Board and it, it shows the Ottawa River watershed. It's not a high resolution map so it might seem fuzzy if you're at the back but if you're very close to it, it's still fuzzy. <laughs> um, the, the black line there 
shows the extent of the Ottawa River Basin. So everything inside that big black line flows into the Ottawa River. And the headwaters of the Ottawa River are about 250 kilometers north of Ottawa at a lake called Lake Capimichigama, which is north of the Kabanga Reservoir, and it's in the territory of the Algonquins of Barrier Lake. So we're looking up at this area, all right? And the Ottawa River flows west and north, then across into Lac Simard, Lac des Cannes, into Lake Temiskaming, which is a long fjord-type lake that's about 75 miles long. So then it turns south here, goes past Lake Kippewa, um, down to Mattawa, which is here, I believe, and then it goes east, that's Element Island, Pembroke, keeps going, there's Ottawa, keeps going, there's Lake of Two Mountains and Oka, Ganesadaga, and there's Montreal Island where it meets the St. Lawrence and of course empties out into, uh, into the Atlantic Ocean. So it's about 1,200 kilometers long. And uh, up until the early 1900s, the rivers and the lakes of the Ottawa River watershed, they were, they were the highway. And in fact, all through North America, that was the highway. So you need to think of the Ottawa River sort of like as the 401 or the 417, because that was the way people got around, certainly when, when the ice wasn't uh, covering the water. So, um, for instance, uh, if you were an Algonquin person that was living around here at Oka, you could go up the Ottawa till you get to Mattawa. Then you could turn left, go into Lake Nipissing, get into Georgian Bay through the French River, and go up into the interior of the Great the Upper Great Lakes and into the interior of, uh, of the continent. Or when you got to Mattawa, you could turn north, go up to Lake Temiskaming, go across over the height of land into the James Bay watershed and go north to James Bay. Um, you could also take a long route around this way back through the headwaters of the Ottawa, across into the St. Maurice watershed and come down into Three Rivers or Quebec City. These were many of the ancient trade routes um, which the Algonquins and other tribes made use of before Europeans came. The other important thing, I guess, about the river and about rivers in general is that they served as boundaries as well between individual communities and between nations. Uh, I'll get into that a bit later, but boundaries were pretty clearly identified. Sometimes they were fought over, but uh, certainly watersheds and uh, rivers and lakes were an important uh, means of establishing territory and defining territory. Okay, this map here, and I believe there's some copies floating around, so if you'd like, you can take a look and share them. There aren't enough to go around. Um, this is, a, is, a, is, again, it's another map of the Ottawa River watershed, but what this shows are today's contemporary communities, just to give you an idea. Um, within the Algonquin Nation, there are 10 recognized uh, communities today. Um, I'll start uh, here, Pickwakanigan, also known as Golden Lake. That's by Renfrew. Um, and we'll go up here. Eagle Village, also known as Kippewa, on the shores of Lake Kippewa. This is Wolf Lake. 
Up here is Temiskaming. Over here, Long Point, also known as Winaway. Here is Kitchisakic, formerly known as Grand Lake Victoria. Here is Barrier Lake. Kitiganzibi, also known as Manawaki or River Desert. And then you have Lac Seymour and Abitibi Winnie, which are north of the Haida land, which, but which today are considered Algonquin communities. And then you have Wagashig over here, which uh, has a large component of Algonquin people as its members. And then neighboring communities have Metachuan, Tomogamy, both of which have considerable number of people of Algonquin kinship. You've got Nipissing. And then over here we have Ganasadage, Oka, also known as Lake of Two Mountains, Ganawage, and Akwasasne, which are Iroquoian communities. And there's about, oh, between 10 and 12,000 individual members of the Algonquin nation today. So, um, there, the Algonquin people were established in this watershed by the time the Europeans arrived, they'd already been here. I skipped over the Ice Age, but I should say that when the glaciers retreated, um, we know that at Pembroke, uh, around Pembroke Morrison Island, also at uh, Fort Temiskaming, on, on Lake Temiskaming, um, there is physical evidence of human occupation going back six, 7,000 years before present. And although we can't tie those people definitively to today's Algonquins, there's no cultural discontinuity. In other words, uh, their cultural matrix was essentially the same as, as the historic Algonquins, and there's no doubt that they were connected. Um, we find significant evidence of pre-contact trade that extended throughout North America. So at Fort Temiskaming, for instance, um, that was a trading location for upwards of 6,000 years, and they found trade goods from uh, the Atlantic coast, from the Midwest of the States, from James Bay. So that gives you some idea of the, uh, the extent of the uh, pre-European trading networks. And I should mention one thing just briefly as well about the term Algonquin, because it, it creates a lot of confusion, especially if you're looking back at the historical records. The communities I've just mentioned that are inside the basin here, really, they only became commonly known as Algonquins at, at the end of the 19th century. Prior to that, there were a number of different designations that were used. Uh, for the French, uh, their initial use of the word Algonquin probably only referred to the people living along the Ottawa River, south of Deep River, between Deep River and Montreal. The people further to the west and north were known as Nipissings. They were closely related to the Algonquins. Uh, the people in the interior were variously known as uh, Jean de Terre, Tête de Bull. The people up by Temiskaming were known as Temiskamings. And uh, also some people were called the Utamagamis. But these are all, by the 19th century, like I said, the, the terminology had sort of standardized and these people became known as Algonquins. Uh, there's also some confusion because there's an anthropological term, Algonquian which actually refers to a, a, a very large language group uh, that stretches from the East Coast, the Mi'kmaq, all the way to the Soto in, in Manitoba. It, 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 it's a description of a, of a linguistic group, so that's another, another uh, area of confusion sometimes. Uh, 
you may have read or heard sometimes that the Eastern Woodlands peoples were nomadic and they wandered around and they didn't have a, a place or territory, they, they didn't have a notion of, of land tenure or territory, but that, that's not the case. Um, in fact, there was a very logical seasonal round based on their economy and their social structure. Essentially, in the wintertime, extended families would go out into their individual hunting grounds and they would hunt rabbits and, and big game and, and trap and so on. And then in the springtime, they would gather in larger groups. And depending on the season, they would gather in even larger groups, particularly uh, at the mouths of rivers where there were, were um, abundant fisheries. And those fisheries would enable larger groups of people to get together. And so you had larger groupings that would get together seasonally like that. By the time the fall came, people would be packing up and going back to their family territories. Uh, the key building block of social organization, like in any society, was the family. Uh, the extended family. So not the nuclear family like we're you know, familiar with uh, North America and post-industrial society, but the extended family, parents, grandparents, in-laws, and so on, uh, depending on each other and supporting each other. Uh, those extended families were made up larger groupings which were known as bands. And each band had a very specific territory that was well defined and well understood by others. Um, those individual bands were then quite often the next level of social organization up was what you might call tribal council today which um, is groupings of, of bands that were connected. So for instance there's four or five bands around Lake Temiskaming which even today, they're connected by kinship and they work closely together politically. And then for larger issues, you had the nation level. Usually that, that the nation was called upon and decisions were made at that level during times of war or when there were disputes with neighboring nations. But uh, the other thing I should mention is that uh, the, the landholding unit was the band, from what we know, from what we, the research we've done. So the band was the landholding unit, and the, the constituent families within the band would, would occupy defined areas of territory. There were very strict and clear rules about trespass, and uh, a very keen understanding of tenure and uh, the respective rights and responsibilities of the landholder and people who were passing through. And as I mentioned, there was a, an extensive trading network and tribes would trade stuff they didn't have. The Algonquins did a degree of farming, uh, what they call native corn, and, and of course gathering uh, medicinal herbs and so on, but it was really more sedentary communities to the south, the Huron for instance, um, and they would trade corn with the Nipissings who would then take that corn and go up into James Bay and trade that for, uh, for furs and so on. So there was an extensive trade network prior to the Europeans coming. The French and the English, I'd like to speak a bit about the coming of the Europeans. Um, the French entry into North America was, for our purposes anyway, it was through the St. Lawrence. You know, they came into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, set up at Quebec City, and, and moved up and inward. Um, they had penetrated, by the 1600s, they penetrated up here. We know Champlain passed through the Ottawa Valley in the 1610s. Um, 
and that was their highway to the to the interior and they were allied with the tribes that they met uh, the British and the French at this time had no military superiority so they were dependent on the tribes they were dependent on the goodwill of the tribes and they had to essentially enter into treaty and trading relationships to be able to survive and to be able to, to you know extend themselves so the French became allied with the Mi'kmaq, the Huron, the Innu, the Atikamekw, the Algonquins, the Nipissings, the Ojibwe and Anishinaabe people. That was the French allies. The British point of entry was from the south through, of course, New England and New York. They initially allied themselves with the, what was then known as the Five Nations, the Iroquois, um, who occasionally and traditionally had beefs with the northern tribes anyway. And the other point of entry for the English was through James Bay after 1670 when the, uh, the Hudson's Bay Company was given a royal charter. So um, the British and the French, as you know, had rivalries on the continent of Europe and, and colonial wars and imperial wars, and they, they drafted their tribal allies in North America to be their proxies and fight on their behalf. So you have a series of serious uh, conflicts in the 1600s off and on um, with the basically the French allied tribes fighting against the Iroquois with the French and the English pulling the strings and, and so on and, and a series of peace, pieces that were made and so on. Um, this culminated Oh, and I should mention one other thing about this period. Um, the Algonquins in particular were unique because they controlled the highway to the interior. So to get the furs in the upper, to get to the upper Great Lakes and get the furs in the interior, you had to go through the Ottawa Valley. They charged tolls. Um, they controlled the trade up and down the Ottawa. Also, they would trade with whoever gave them the best deal. So we found, like in the 1600s, the people at Temiskaming, um, occasionally they'd go north to James Bay to trade with the English, but they would also go south to Montreal or to Three Rivers to trade with the French, depending on where they could get the best deal. Uh, in the 1680s, the French set up a fur trading post in Temiskaming to try and keep them there. That was destroyed by the Iroquois, and then it was reopened in 1720. And that trading post existed up to the early, to about 1905. I'm going to flip over because there's a lot of stuff and I'm realizing time is going by. Um, I should talk a bit about the missionaries because that's also an important theme. Uh, as you know, um, the, the French and the Catholic Church were worked very closely in terms of their colonization efforts. And um, one of the things the French did early on was to set up a mission uh, in fact, it's 1702, they set up a first mission at Yellow Tort. I'm not pronouncing it right, I'm sure, but it's in the Montreal area. And the idea of this mission was to draw in Algonquin people from the Ottawa down to Montreal on a seasonal basis. They wanted to convert them to Christianity. They also wanted to encourage them to become civilized in their view, which meant becoming agrarian and sedentary. So they would had the mission. They would encourage people to come down in the spring, teach them how to farm, settle, and then in the in the fall, these people would go back to their to their hunting territories 
for the most part. Um, certainly we know that for many of the Algonquins, they came down probably more so to trade than to be missionized. Um, but, and we know that Temiskaming people during this or the early 1700s were, were visitors down there, but once the post was reestablished up here in 1720, they stopped coming down. Um, in 1717, they moved it from Montreal, from near Montreal to Oka Ganazadagi, and that was called the Lake of Two Mountains. It was set up by the Sulpicians, and um, there were three villages there. There was a Iroquoian village, there was a Nipissing village, and there was an Algonquin village, and mostly they drew people from sort of North Bay, down the Ottawa. These were mostly the people that came and then the people in the lower parts of all the tributaries. So they would come down in the spring and then go back home in the fall. And what we find is that during this period, so that was from um, well, 1717 up to about the 1840s. And what we find in that period is that you get uh, 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 what I would call, I guess, a sort of dual identity among the traditional bands all the way along the Ottawa here, where the people who were in the lower tributaries were in the habit of going to the mission and coming back, and they were baptized and so on. But their kin, who were further in the interior, <coughs> didn't go to Oka. They didn't become missionized. They were still considered pagans. And, uh, but they still remained members of the same traditional communities. So you got this dual identity where there were some members of the community who were more missionized and would go down to Oka seasonally, but others of their kin who lived further inland who stayed inland and didn't. Um, by about 1840, people stopped coming down to Oka. One of the main reasons for that was because by then logging had taken over in the Ottawa Valley, and we have ample reports of the river just being so clogged with, with timber rafts that people couldn't navigate anymore and, and use their canoes to get down. So that was one thing that stopped people from coming down. Uh, at the same time, after about 1836, the missionaries started sending people up into the territory. Instead of asking people to come down, they'd send their missionaries up. And by about 1860, 65, there was a permanent mission on Lake Temiskaming right across the narrows from the fort. And that was used by the Oblates as a base to do their annual circuit where they would go up into Abitibi and beyond in the interior. And there was a series of uh, mission posts up here, Fort William and other locations where, so the, the Oblates really drove that and they, were, they went in. So they changed their strategy, right? Okay, um, going back a bit, 1760, the, that was the end of the Seven Years' War. The British, of course, again, they were fighting another war with France and they were using the native tribes as their proxies. Um, the British tried very hard. They needed to get the alliance or else the neutrality of the French First Nation allies to be able to take over Montreal and Quebec City. So they started working very hard to uh, get the neutrality or the alliance of, of, the former, of the French allies. And they entered into a series of treaties between 1759 and 1764 to secure that. Um, one of the things that's, and the Algonquins and Nipissings participated in a number of those treaties. One at Swagachi in 1760 when the British were on their way to Montreal, 
and then another one at Ganawage in 1760 after the capitulation of the French. And the reason I'm mentioning that is because there were significant commitments made by the British at that time. Uh, they indicated to the, the, who were the allies of the French at that time, we'll recognize your land rights, we'll protect your land rights, we'll give you freedom to trade, freedom of religion, let us pass through and we'll be your friends. The, the British had already entered into a number of treaties with the, the, the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee, and that was called the Covenant Chain of Treaties, and they invited the, the French, the, the, the tribes that had been allied with the French to join them in that. So they made these commitments, essentially recognizing Algonquin Aboriginal title, all right, and saying that they were going to protect it. Uh, so after the British, uh, after the British uh, defeated the French, they didn't hold back their colonists, and land was still being taken. So there was a Madawa war chief named Pontiac who led a rebellion in 1763-64. And they started uh, taking down a lot of the British forts all up through the upper lakes. And uh, that led the British to sue for peace. And uh, King George III uh, issued the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which some of you may be familiar with. The Royal Proclamation did many things. Uh, but for our purposes tonight, what's important is that it recognized the territory, um, basically, to the east of, uh, or to the west, sorry, of, of here as Indian territory. It said that European people couldn't settle there without first getting consent from the tribes and that the tribes could only uh, share their land with the crown. The crown would protect them from the greedy settlers, I guess you could say, to make it simple. And so the Crown said that it would protect their interests and that lands could only be taken up for settlement by treaty. What we find is that on the Ontario side, that procedure was generally followed after 1760s. Uh, there would be, first there would be a treaty, lands would be acquired, then there would be surveys and then settlement would follow that. For a variety of reasons in Quebec that didn't happen. Well, what happened in Quebec is that the loggers would come up, they'd be followed by squatters, uh, and the government would essentially recognize the squatters' titles without acquiring or making any effort to get uh, Aboriginal consent. And that's, that's something that, that's a legacy we're still living with today, which I'll get into. After the American Revolutionary War in the 1780s, you've got a surge of uh, United Empire loyalists coming into Canada. And that put pressure on uh, indigenous people's territory because they started to clear, want to clear land where lands hadn't been settled. Um, and that's when, really, 1790s, you start to get petitions coming from the Algonquins and Nipissings saying, well, wait a minute, we entered into these treaties with you not that long ago. Uh, we have the Royal Proclamation of 1763. They actually had been given hard copies, and as late as the 1840s, the Algonquins and Nipissings still had their original copy of the Royal Proclamation of 1763 that had been given to their chiefs, and they're making petitions and showing up to meet the governor with their copies of the Royal Proclamation, saying, here, you, <laughs> this is what you, you've said. You, you made these commitments, and we want you to honor them. So, um, so that's when you start to get the petitions. And I, 
I'll just read one very briefly just to give you an idea of the flavor, but these start in the 1790s and they go right through to the 1920s and they're still being written today. But this is 1835, uh, James Hughes is writing to the Indian Department of Toronto. Several chiefs and warriors of the Nipissings and Algonquin tribes um, have requested me to write to you. These tribes are by far the best Indians in the lower province. The only means they have had since time memorial to gain a livelihood was the chase, in other words, hunting. They've always been in the habit of following, and they succeeded in supporting themselves until recently. They say that their hunting grounds have been entirely ruined by the white settlers. The squatters have taken possession of certain portions, but especially the lumbermen who set fire to the woods, destroy the beavers and their peltry, drive away the deer. Um, they're bringing their grievances to you. Promises have been made. They want a fair resolution. And you just get repeats of that over and over and over for the next... 150 years. Um, generally speaking, no action is taken because um, a couple of things. After the War of 1812, the British no longer needed indigenous nations as military allies. And so it became a civil matter. Up until then, Indian Affairs had actually been a, a military jurisdiction. After 1812, it's transferred to civil administration. And um, because the Europeans aren't dependent on indigenous nations anymore for military survival, they start to relegate their demands and their rights to a lower level and um, basically um, facilitating the, uh, the, um, the exploitation of the territory. The other thing I should, well, yeah, so, okay, let's get to lumbering now, because lumbering's important, especially for this part of the country. Um, in 1800, the, the demand for lumber was really driven by the Napoleonic Wars. There was a blockade of the Baltic, and it was preventing England from getting timber that it was relying on for its navy. So they started taking timber from the Atlantic Canada and up the Ottawa Valley um, for the masts for their ships, for their tall ships, and that was really what started but then they got into uh, other forms of, of uh, logging for, for the building trade. So in 1802, you get a fellow named Philemon Wright, who came up from uh, New England, Massachusetts, with a group of families and servants, and they settled in Hull. And they started to log. They were confronted by the Algonquins at the time, and they said, well, don't worry, we've, we've got permission to do so, and that triggered petitions from the Algonquins and Nipissings at the time. Nonetheless, uh, Philemon Wright settled and they started logging up around the Ottawa and then up the tributaries, up the Gatineau. Uh, they took their first raft of square timber down to Quebec City in 1806. And at that time, um, if you can imagine, the trees were really big. They were probably about 400 years old. And white pine and red pine um, there, you hear accounts of trees that might have been 175 feet tall with the first branch at 100 feet. And red pine and white pine, first they went for the red pine, then the white pine. So they would take these trees down, they'd square them, which was a wasteful way of doing it. You got rid of about a third of the tree that way, but they'd, they'd take these and make them into just huge square beams. 
and then uh, get them down to the river in the winter, in the spring, uh, you know, when it melted, they, they'd assemble these into what they called cribs, which were rafts put together, these ginormous rafts, so big that they'd have a whole crew living on them with a, a, a cook tent and a camp, just giant things. That they'd float down the Ottawa River, they'd disassemble them when they came to certain rapids. Um, there was a lot of capital investment in slides, dams to raise the water levels, and flumes and that kind of thing to be able to get these logs down. Sometimes they'd have to disassemble the cribs, float them down these chutes, and then reassemble them on the other side and get them down to Quebec City. From there, they were put into the holds of ships and taken to England. And later, the U.S. became a big export market as well. Anyway, um, so after Philemon Wright got his first uh, raft of square timber down to Quebec City, more people started coming up, and it really just exploded. The timber trade just exploded. Uh, largely, uh, the lumbermen themselves were Irish and French, and the bosses were Anglo. Um, by 1822, logging had made it up to the Mississippi River. They started formally uh, applying crown dues in the late 1820s. They set up a crown timber office in Bytown, as it was then known. And uh, um, they just started going up all of the tributaries, the Mississippi River, the Madawaska, the Des Moines, the Black River, the Coulange, the Gatineau, and just logging their way up. Um, by yeah, Bytown. They laid out Bytown in 1826, and that was the same year that they started building the Rideau Canal. By 1839, Bytown had about 2,000 inhabitants. And what you start to see happen is, is a, a pattern of impacts that affect the Algonquins. And I'd like to explain this in some detail because it's really important for you folks to get a sense of this. Um, log in, in the Ottawa Valley, logging preceded settlement for the most part. But what preceded the logging was waves of epidemic diseases. And they had quite a dramatic impact. And it, it, this, this scenario repeats itself all the way up. What I'm going to explain is some events that happened at the head of Lake Temiskaming in the 1840s. All right, but you can be sure that though that same pattern had started down here and just went all the way up the Ottawa River. What were some of these diseases? Well, we have measles, you've got influenza, you've got tuberculosis, you've got scrofula, which is tuberculosis of the bones and glands, you've got scarlet fever, you've got smallpox. Um, these were often brought back into communities by men that had been out trading. And they'd gone to the periphery of settlement and run into um, uh, European loggers and got these bugs and then came home and brought them into their home communities. And um, between 1843 and 1852, there was a really brutal series of epidemics throughout the Upper Ottawa. And I, I'm going to read you something because just to give you an idea of what what people had to go through. And this was before the loggers even got there. This is before the settlers even got there. This is all preceding it. Okay, so in 1849, there's no real settlement on Lake Temiskaming. There's a fur trading post. It's still a fur trade economy. There's this fellow named James Cameron, and he's writing to his uncle Angus, who had been the post master 
before him and had retired, he'd gone back to Scotland. And this guy's writing his uncle, and he's writing about people that they both know, families that his uncle used to trade with and they know. So here's what he says. He says, the great cause of the failure in the fur returns is the mortality and sickness amongst the poor natives. Consumption and scrofula, or king's evil, is carrying them off by the dozens. It is really horrible to see the poor wretches in the hot season when afflicted with the latter from their filthy state. The sores engender maggots, and they are food for the worms when alive. So that my situation amongst them is anything but pleasant. The poor wretches lying in all directions about the point and in a state that medicine can be of no avail. There were two or three of the head of the lake Indians helpless last year, but in the month of January last, they were nearly all seized. And when I saw them on my way back from Abitibi in the beginning of March, they were crawling out to the Riviere Blanche, such a painful state of suffering I never saw. Old Nanny's sons with their families were living skeletons. Two women would be hauling a train with their husbands and children. Jig Murray and his children, except two little ones, are dead. Obasa witches will soon follow them. His only son is just now a mass of corruption. Quissus lost his son also. He's the only one in health of his brothers. Jolly Garson and his brother have lost nearly all their children and the former his wife. But why continue this sad list? It is the same all over. And that's before the lumbermen even get there. All right? So this just gives you an idea. So what happens, and that had been happening in previous generations, from 1802 onward, all the way up the Ottawa. So what happens is that you get a number of traditional bands where they're, they're being depopulated very fast. Breadwinners are no longer there. Traditional communities are having to reorganize themselves and regroup to make up for the population loss. Okay, and, and this is what you find happening in Algonquin territory throughout that, that period of, of, the, uh, of the 1800s. And, and wherever logging goes, this is what would precede it. Then the loggers come. And they weren't clear-cutting in those days like they do now, but they were destroying habitat, setting fires to clear forest. They would not only compete, or they not only cut down the forest and destroy habitat, but also they would be competing with the local Algonquin people for fish and game because these guys would trap on the side, okay? On top of that, the, the rivers would get clogged with timber being taken out every spring so people couldn't use their, their, uh, their canoes to navigate to get to where they would usually go to. So these are the, some of the kinds of impacts, and that's when you start to get more petitions from the people up in the interior saying, you know, you, you need to set aside some lands for us so that we can protect ourselves from these intruders. And again, in, in Quebec, for the most part, those pleas were not uh, were not responded to. Um, then you get the then you get colonization, which follows that because the settlers follow the lumbermen. And uh, just to give you an idea of um, where it took time here. Okay, I've got to move through the calendar a bit here, I see. Um, okay, just a bit more about the reserves. You've got a lot of petitions for reserves throughout, starting in the 1790s. In 1851, the province of Canada, for the lower Canada portion, they adopt legislation establishing uh, reserves. The way they approached it in Quebec is they set a quantum, a maximum amount of reserve land that could be created. So 
So I think it was 230,000 acres for the whole of Lower Canada. And the Algonquins received two allocations out of that. One at River Desert, now known as Kittigan-Zeebee, and one at Lake Temiskaming at the head of the lake. And all of the Algonquin communities were intended to relocate on those reserves and become centralized and become sedentary. In the vast majority of cases, people just refused to move. They said, it's too far, we want to stay in our traditional territory, and we're going to make it the best we can where we are. Um, so you, you, what you have is a number of communities that remained landless because they didn't move to these centralized reserves. Um, and the reserve creation process in Quebec is very convoluted, but just to give you an example, okay, so Kittigan-Zeebee's here, their reserve was surveyed in 1849, Temiskaming, 1854, but it really wasn't settled until the 1880s when colonization pushed people on. Eagle Village, Kippewa people, they didn't get a reserve until 1974 when the government of Canada purchased land from a third party to establish, uh, and just basically enough land for housing. That's it. Um, Barrier Lake got a reserve, I think, in 1963, 64, about 59 acres, just enough for housing, basically. Lac Seamal got a bit larger reserve around 1963. Abitibi Winnie, they had to purchase their reserve in the 1940s, 50s. Um, Pickwakanigan, Golden Lake, they had to purchase their reserve in the 1870s. Um, Wolf Lake today still does not have reserve lands. Long Point, also known as Winnaway, today does not have reserve lands. They're settled on what's called an Indian settlement. It's treated as if it's a reserve, but they don't have a clear title. So it's uh, Kitchisakic, Grand Lake Victoria, they still do not have reserve lands today. Um, Quebec, as always, and Ontario, have always found reasons to say, well, we can't because there's a timber license. We gave the rights to somebody else, so we can't give it to these guys. There's always been reasons. So today, um, in terms of historic First Nation bands, Quebec has the largest number of traditional bands that don't have reserve lands. And out of those, uh, the Algonquins of all the nations in Canada are the one, the one nation that has the most number of communities without even lands that they have reserved to themselves, even for simply housing purposes. All of this was made more difficult in 1867 with Confederation because what happened was you have a division of powers. The provinces get control of the lands and resources within their territories. They also got, you know, health, education, so on. The federal government inherits the old imperial responsibilities of legislative responsibility for Indians and lands reserved for Indians, as, as it says in the Constitution. So the federal government's got the responsibility for the tribes but the provinces have the land. And that's a, something that continues to plague res resolution of the Algonquin land question today is this division of powers. Um, and the fact that once the provinces got the land after 1867, they just started giving it out. So the pie's already been divided up. And when it comes time for First Nations people to say, well, we like, you still need to set us aside a reserve. We've been waiting for 150 years, like the people at Wolf Lake say. Quebec says, well, we, 
we already gave it to everybody else. So that, that's a, a problem today. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example before I move into the 20th century of um, the effect of colonization in Lake Temiskaming, because that's something I have statistics for. But again, you can just replicate this all the way down the valley. Um, in 1871, the fur trade was still, it was affected by timber trade, there's no doubt, but the fur trade was still alive and well in the Temiskaming region in 1871. And from what we know, Algonquin people made up about 77% of the population around Lake Temiskaming in, in 1871. Colonization started there in, in the 1880s, mid-1880s. So that by 1886, about 45% of the population was Algonquin. So that's after 15 years, 16 years. By 1892, they were down to 11% of the population. And by 1901, they were 3% of the local population. So that's in a period of 31 years. 31 years, they went from being 77% of the population to 3%. And with that diminishment, their influence, of course, diminished their ability to participate in decision-making or benefit from resource development diminished. All right? Okay, well, let's move into the 20th century. Just a moment here. And there's a couple of themes I'd like to just pursue for the 20th century. Uh, one is dams. Um, you know, the Ottawa River, and I didn't get into the, history, the whole history of timber in the Ottawa River. It wasn't just square timber. It went into different things, but we won't worry about that tonight. Uh, dams. Initially, during the, during the, uh, the timber trade era, Dams were primarily used to raise water levels to get the logs out. So they were localized, they were on particular lakes and drainage systems, and they were used in combination with flumes and, and uh, timber slides to get the timber out. That's all it was about. Uh, but one thing happened which was hydroelectricity changed things at the turn of the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century. Uh, in Ottawa here, you had E.B. Eddy, who basically had the rights to the water powers on the Quebec side, and you had J.R. Booth, who had the water powers on the Ontario side. And they had set up, you know, early on, people set up mills where there was water powers to power their, you know, water wheels and stuff. But then they started getting hydroelectricity. And in those days, there wasn't any Hydro-Quebec or Hydro-Ontario. The generators of the electrical power would generate the power, build the distribution lines, sell it to either corporate sector or to individuals. And what was happening was this. The control of the, water, of the Ottawa River was controlled naturally by the elements. So in the spring, you'd have high water with the freshets from runoff and so on. By the time the end of summer came along, it might just be a trickle by the time it got to Ottawa. There was a lot of unevenness based on the seasonal round. So what E.B. Eddy and, and uh, J.R. Booth found was that they built these generators. They wanted to sell electricity to consumers, but in the summertime, they weren't getting enough flow to run their generators. And they had been busy litigating against each other over who had which islands in, in the Ottawa. They decided to get together and go after the Federal Department of Public Works to get them to build dams to create reservoirs on the upper Ottawa so they could regularize the flow 
So uh, around 1903, they write to Public Works. Uh, these guys are captains of industry. And uh, within seven years, no, within eight or nine years, the engineers have been sent out. They found the locations and reservoir dams, holding dams have been built on the upper Ottawa. And that's the start of really the modern control of, of the Ottawa River. You had um, a dam here at the outlet of Lac des Cans, which created a reservoir back here. You had a dam built at the bottom of Lake Temiskaming, which raised the water level of that lake by about 15 feet. You had a dam built at the outlet of Kippewa River at Lanyell, and another one at Gordon Creek at the town of Temiskaming. And together, those created a huge reservoir, and they would start to operate the dams and uh, empty them out to regularize the flow so that down here in Ottawa, we could have more steady water levels. And that made E.B. Eddy and G.R. Bruce quite happy, of course, because they were able to satisfy their customers. So that was the start of, of the dams on the Ottawa River in terms of you know, big stuff. Um, following that, Ontario and Quebec both sent out uh, engineering crews and they started to identify areas where they could uh, set up hydroelectricity de generation. And uh, Quebec really went out at gung-ho. They set up a whole bunch of dams on the Gatineau and in the interior in the 1920s. They started creating more reservoirs. I think in the 1920s they created the Kabonga Reservoir up by Barrier Lake, the Baskaton Reservoir. In the 1940s you get Dozois, I think. And, um, there was a dispute, jurisdictional dispute over the Ottawa River because it's transboundary. So you had Ontario and Quebec arguing with Canada about who would make the money off the, the power dams on the Ottawa. And that wasn't resolved until the 1940s. Ontario and Quebec hadn't been getting Canada to act. What they did was they used the war effort as a rationale. They said, look, we need to increase industrial production, so we need to be able to build power dams on the Ottawa River. We've come up with a draft agreement, Canada, we want you to ratify it so that we can go ahead. And Canada did. And they, they basically, Ontario and Quebec then divvied up the big dams on the Ottawa. Um, Ontario got the upper Ottawa, Quebec got the lower Ottawa. So down by Carillon, near Montreal, those dams there, those are run by Quebec and were built by Quebec. And then uh, Mattawa, uh, Rolfton, where the Otto Holden Dam is, those are, those are Ontario. So um, by 1984, there were 43 hydroelectric generating stations on the Ottawa River Basin, and they were producing about $1 million worth of electricity a day. Um, in 1983, the year before that, Ontario, Canada, and Quebec established the Ottawa River Regulation Planning Board with the goal of integrating the management of the main reservoir. So there's been pretty structured management and control of the Ottawa River for a number of years now. It, it, it sort of happened in stages. And of course, consistent with the rest of what I've explained tonight, these things had a dramatic impact on Algonquin people. There was no compensation. Uh, one example, I can give you a concrete example on Lake Temiskaming when they built that dam in 1910, 1913. It raised the water level of the lake about 15 feet. That lake's 75 miles long, and it, it's in Quebec and Ontario. Public Works went all along the lake shore to identify landowners municipalities, you're going to be impacted by the dam. For town of New Liskert, it's going to affect your sewage system. We're going to need to compensate you folks. You're going to have to rebuild. Sports clubs, 
everybody, they knocked on everybody's door to compensate them, except the reserve at the head of the lake, Lake Temiskaming, who lost a significant amount of their lakeshore. They never even called them. The files show no indication that the community was even approached to receive compensation. Um, another sort of irony is the people at Barrier Lake, Kabanga Reservoir, well, Rapid Lake, the reserve that was created in the 1960s, uh, the, the, the Kabanga Reservoir was created in the 1920s as a reservoir to help power the dams on the Gatineau. Um, Quebec has been generating revenues from that reservoir and the dams south of it since the 1920s. Um, Barrier Lake still, they get their power from a diesel generator, they're still not connected to the power grid. And they can't build new houses because the power generator has reached its maximum capacity and Hydro-Quebec wants to charge an extortionate amount to hook them up to the grid and build a line in. Even though Hydro-Quebec has been generating revenues from that reservoir since the 1920s, almost 100 years. So that, that's an example of uh, some of the disparities. I could also talk about fish and game, or I could talk about court cases and land claims policy. Do you guys want to tell me what you'd rather hear? Because I've, I've probably I've got about five or ten minutes. I could do one or the other, or I could do both and go for another 20 minutes. Okay, so let's get into fish and game, because that that's also has a significant impact on the communities. Um, initially, most of the settlers were subsistence hunters, so they would hunt for fish and game for food, and they would compete with Algonquin people for that fish and game, just like the lumbermen did, and, you know, there was that puts additional pressure on those resources. But starting in the 1890s, Ontario and Quebec both realized that there's serious money to be made by bringing rich people from the US or Montreal or Toronto, bringing them up to fish and hunt. Because those people will spend money. They'll spend money at the lodge, they'll spend money on gas, they'll spend money on licenses. So Ontario and Quebec both realized this is a huge revenue generator. And it really starts in the 1890s, but it really begin, it, it gets serious in, in, the, in the 20th century. At the same time, uh, and, and uh, at the same time, you get itinerant trappers, particularly after World War I and during the Depression. Uh, new immigrants from Europe, mostly, many of them actually from uh, the Nordic countries, who would hop on the rail line and jump off the rail line and use poison and clear out an area by trapping it with poison and then once they cleaned it out they'd move on. Uh, Algonquin people generally had very established and strict conservation practices. For instance, if you had a beaver house, you'd always leave a couple in there to make, to make sure there were more beaver next season. You'd never clean out the beaver house or say you trap one area for a number of years, then you'd stop trapping it and trap a different area to leave that one fallow to, re, to rebalance. When you have itinerant people who aren't tied to the land coming through, they don't think about that, they don't know who's there, they don't know whose trap lines are there, they just come in, clean it out and move on. It was unregulated and it created incredible hardship in Northern Ontario and Northern Quebec, and particularly by the 1920s. You get lots of reports in the press, petitions, We've got to do something. These people are, you know, it's just an invasion of, of, of white trappers, essentially. So in Quebec, 
uh, in 19, the 1920s, they established uh, the Grand Lac Beaver Preserve, which was supposed to be only for Algonquins to harvest um, fur bearers. Ontario didn't really get on that boat. They just said, well, tough. Um, so you get the trapping thing. And then afterwards, in the, after World War II, you get the registered trap line system that's introduced as a way to try and manage and control the unrestricted trapping. But what we find, particularly in Ontario, but also in Quebec, is that when they established the registered trap line system, they used it as an opportunity to squeeze out what were the Indians that were left trapping. So in, if you look at the, the records from the 1920s or the 30s and 40s, particularly after 46, 47 in Ontario when they established the registered trap line system, people are saying, I've been trapping here, my family's been, my ancestors are trapping here, now you gave it to somebody else. And the local conservation officers and the local settler elite would be handing these things out to their buddies. And quite often the province would say, these Indian people are a federal responsibility, it's not our problem. So you, you get that happening. Um, and then I'll get back to the tourism thing. Um, Ontario and Quebec had very different approaches to sports harvesting. Ontario, Quebec was more laissez-faire. They'd let things get out of hand and they'd try and fix it, but it was more relaxed. They never really had a systematic um, war against Algonquin trappers or hunters like they did in Ontario, but in Ontario they did. They had a systematic war, basically, uh, throughout the early part of the 20th century. And here we have a letter from the uh, Minister of Game and Fisheries in Ontario. In 1936, he's writing Indian Affairs, because Indian Affairs is saying, how can you do this to these people? They're trying to make a living. It's the Depression. They, you know. And the Minister of Game and Fish says, we, while we have every sympathy with the Indian, <coughs> I might point out to you that with a revenue from the tourist trade in this province, which reached about $70 million in the year 1935, attracted principally by the Game and Fisheries Department, we will not, even to the extent of having to defend our rights in any test case, tolerate any unnecessary slaughter of this tourist attraction for the Indians. It's much cheaper for these people to be kept in luxury than to allow the wanton slaughter to be carried out in this province. And the impact of that uh, was fell very heavily on the Algonquin people at Golden Lake. And again, I mean, some of the letters you get in the, in the 30s are just heartrending. Um, here's a fellow, um, there's a family, a family from Golden Lake. They've been nailed by the game warden. They were out hunting for their extended family. They had seven deer. And um, the Indian agents writing to, 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 the, to Ontario saying, have leniency on these people. Um, they're supporting their kids, they've got an extended family, they were hunting for their, for their extended family, they can make use of these seven deer without wasting any of the meat. This guy gets about 18 months, $18 a month on relief, it's not enough to supply his family. Um, please uh, give him le leniency and return the six deer. Instead of returning the six deer, they take the six deer away, they take his firearm away, which is a way to free him to earn livelihood, and they issue a fine which he can't pay, so he has to go to jail, he does time, because he can't pay the fine. And um, Ontario writes back to say, this has already been brought to the attention of our deputy minister, the wholesale slaughter of deer cannot be condoned, 
And we feel that upon reflection, we'll realize there's no other course of action open to us. So you have people that were trying to harvest for their livelihood to feed their family. It's clear that they were. There's corroborating evidence from the Indian agents along. And Ontario uh, insists on not only uh, levying fines, but knowing that these people can't pay their fines, they, they go to jail. So that, that, again, that's just a little vignette to give you an idea of some of the issues and some of the, the things that have happened with respect to hunting and fishing. So let's fast forward to the 1970s, the enlightened era. Um, what you find is that um, Aboriginal communities started to do their own research and started to find out about what had happened. Uh, the residential schools, which uh, we'll get to later when that question comes back, but they had a real impact on communities in terms of interrupting the transmission of oral history and knowledge. So in the 1970s, you start to get communities trying to find out more about what happened. Um, and some communities say enough is enough, we're, we're going to go to court, we're going to collect money to go to court. I should have mentioned that in the 1920s, to prevent that, the federal government amended the Indian Act to prohibit the collecting of any money to hire lawyers or land claims by First Nations. You had to get permission of the superintendent general. It was an offense to collect money to, to go to court to protect your rights. And that wasn't repealed until 1951. So in BC, as you may know, there's almost no treaties. And in there, there's been always a lot of agitation about what they call the land question. And in BC, you get a lot of landmark cases where people just said, enough is enough, we're going to court. Uh, the first big one in BC was what they call the Nishka case, the Calder case. Frank Calder was head of the Nishka Nation Tribal Council. And they went to court on Aboriginal title. And Pierre Trudeau was the prime minister then. And he said to them, Aboriginal title is such a vague thing. How could you? Oh, we don't know how to deal with that. Anyway, they went to court. The Supreme Court split on the issue of whether Aboriginal title still existed for the Nishka, but they did indicate that, yes, there is such a thing as title. So following that, the Liberal government, Kretchen was Minister of Indian Affairs, Trudeau was Prime Minister, they set out what the first, what they called Native Claims Policy. And the idea was to try and keep these issues out of the courts and try and resolve them through negotiations. They had one kind of claim, and, and that evolved, that had went through different mutations. In 1975, but government still ignored the stuff, so in 1975, Quebec wants to build the James Bay project. The Crees of Quebec go to court. They get an injunction, Quebec's forced to negotiate. Many people say, and it's true, that the Crees had a gun to their head when they negotiated that agreement, but they got more than anybody since then has gotten. They got income support for their trappers. They got a veto over a lot of activities in their lands. And since then, Quebec has had to go back and negotiate more deals with them. In any event, um, that's what they call the first modern treaty in 1975, the James Bay Northern Quebec Agreement. Um, fortunately for the Crees, they had something Quebec wanted. So Quebec had to settle with them to get to build those dams. For the Algonquins, unfortunately, Settler governments already took everything they wanted. <laughs> so there's not the same kind of leverage that the Crees had back then. Um, in 1982, you have the Constitution Act. You know, they patriated the Constitution, brought it back from Britain. 
And in it, Section 35 of the Constitution Act says that the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and confirmed. It sounds wonderful. But ever since then, there's been a bit debate about what it means. What are these Section 35 rights? Because the government, there was supposed to be a process after that to negotiate the content of what that meant. But it broke down in 87 when Prime Minister Mulroney shut down the First Minister's Conference. So they were never able to negotiate what the meaning of Section 35 was. So you have these legal rights, Aboriginal treaty rights, recognized in the Constitution, but no definition. And governments unwilling to negotiate in good faith a definition of what those rights are. So people continue to go to court. And you get a string of court cases following 1982. Uh, by this time, the federal government has split this native claims policy. And I'm explaining this for a reason. They have what they call specific claims, which are claims related to the administration of reserve lands and assets. Okay, so if you have a reserve, Timiskaming for instance, their original reserve was, uh, well, at one point it was 69,000 acres, today it's 5,000 acres, and that 75, 74,000 acres that got lost was largely through a series of 40 highly questionable, most likely illegal surrenders. The government's on the hook for each of those, and the same for the administration of trust funds and so on. So that's one stream of land claims that exists. Um, Kitty and Zeebe is a good example. They had a number of, of questionable surrenders of their land to create the town site of Manawaki uh, in the years following 1850, and they've succeeded in negotiating compensation for a number of those illegal surrenders. That's just one example. The other big part of land claims is what the government calls comprehensive land claims, and those involve Aboriginal title to the traditional territory. All right. Okay, so in 1987, you had another court case. The Musqueam tribe in British Columbia took the federal government to court over its administration of their reserve lands. The government said, well, yeah, we're controlling everything about it. We wrote the leases. We entered into the, you know, we did all this with the third parties, but we don't have a legal obligation. Yeah, you got screwed, but it's not. The court found, yes, there is a legally enforceable fiduciary duty, like a trust duty. So if the federal government's managing First Nation assets, it has a legal duty to act in their best interests. If it doesn't, there's a liability there. All right. In 1990, you have the situation at Oka, what they sometimes call the, the Oka crisis. That was over a parcel of land. Remember I mentioned that there had been a mission at Oka? The people that were living there believed that the French that was given to them, the missionary order that had it said, no, it wasn't, it's ours, and there's been a fight over it ever since, and, and it's still not resolved. But the Oka crisis was triggered by the municipality wanting to extend into a, a cemetery site to build a golf, to extend, expand a golf course. And, you know, if, you may remember large parts of Canada were shut down because a lot of the First Nations took action in solidarity with the Mohawk people at Ganesadagi. Um, following that, the federal government changed its policy and said, you know, okay, we want to deal with these things. Another important thing in 1990, there was a case called the Siwi case. And the Siwi case um, was, uh, comes out of Hur the Huron village, Lorette, in, in Quebec City. The Huron's traditional territory is along Georgian Bay and, and Midland in Ontario, but the Iroquois did their best to smash them in the 1600s. A portion of the Huron nation 
ended up moving to Quebec City essentially as refugees. And they had a reserve, but they were harvesting. And, but the thing is, in 1760, they were promised certain things in a treaty that they entered into, and I think it was Governor Murray at that time. So what they were saying in 1990 is, we have a right to harvest in this particular area. Quebec said no, Canada said no, and the, the, the Huron said, well, wait, we have this treaty from 1760 where the governor promised us certain rights. The government said, well, that's 1760. You can't expect us to honor that. That's so long ago. They went to court. Supreme Court of Canada found, yes, that's a valid treaty. It's enforceable. Treaty rights are enforceable. So um, then there were other cases. Some of you may be familiar with a case called the Simon case out in, out in Nova Scotia, which was about harvesting... Um, and again, they were relying on a treaty, 1751 treaty, I believe, that the Mi'kmaq entered into with the British. Um, that one was interesting because what the Crown said, okay, you have a treaty right to hunt, but you have to use a bow and arrow. You have to use the same technology that your ancestors used when they signed the treaty. I mean, that's a great... So anyway, the, the judge threw that out. He said, no, you can just pick up, use what you know now. Pick up truck and shotgun. You don't need a, a horse and a... But it just shows you how bizarre things get. <coughs> So you have the Simon case. You have these cases building up. Each time, what the courts have said is, governments, you have to negotiate in good faith. There's now this other thing that's come out of the courts called the, the, uh, the, uh, the honor of the crown, which is that the crown must act in good faith. It must negotiate in good faith. And what happens is that you get these court cases which, where the courts are actually filling in the details of Section 35. What do Aboriginal treaty rights mean? Well, the courts are doing it because the governments are too weak-kneed to, to bite the bullet and do the right thing. So the courts are filling that vacuum, for better or for worse. Every time you get a major court case like that, the governments have an opportunity to change their policies and their practices, and they don't, which is a real shame. Uh, so you keep getting more court cases. So in 1997, the Gitscan and from BC, they end up in the Supreme Court, and what they want is a declaration of Aboriginal title to their, to their traditional territories. It was a huge court case, like, I don't know, hundreds of days of testimony, oral history, all kinds of stuff. Um, the court said, yes, Aboriginal title exists, and here are the tests to try and prove it. So it's the first time where the courts actually said, not only does Aboriginal title exist and rights, but here's what you need to do. So you need to do research, you need to demonstrate your connection with the land, you need to have genealogies done so that you can connect today's people with the people that were on the land as far back as you can go. You need to be able to demonstrate that the people today, that the land that they're using is the same lands that their ancestors were using, or else if they're not, there must be a good reason why, and you have to explain in Delgamuk, the court also said that Aboriginal title is a right of ownership of the land to exclusive use with an inescapable economic component. And what the court said is, go back to negotiate. They're still negotiating today and haven't resolved it because the governments of BC and Canada were reluctant to, to do the right thing. In 2004, there was a decision called the Haida decision. The Haida are on uh, uh, Queen Charlotte Islands, Haida Gwaii. They were challenging the province's right to assign a tree farm license to another company. What they said is, it's going to impact on us, we need to be consulted. If it's going to impact on us, we should be consulted and, and we need to be accommodated if it's going to impact on our rights. Even if our rights haven't been proven yet, we're asserting these rights, we have a certain amount of evidence and you're going to have to deal with it. The court sided with them and laid out rules for consultation. 
So today, the law says that if a government is going to do something that may affect the rights that a, a nation is asserting, that they have to consult with that nation, and, and if necessary, depending on the strength of evidence and depending on the scope, the, na the impact, the nature of the impact, then they have to accommodate. Okay. And then finally, in 2014, you get the Chilcotin decision. And again, that's out of BC, the Chilcotin tribe. Um, they were challenging the province's right to issue a timber license in their traditional territory. By this time, the Supreme Court's just fed up. They get all these cases coming, and they keep saying, go back and negotiate, do the right thing, here's the test. And, and still, you get this same thing of nothing happening. So what the Crown, what the court did in that case was they actually issued, for the first time in Canadian history, they issued a declaration of Aboriginal title. They said the Chilcotin actually own, they have Aboriginal title to this section of land. It's clearly defined. Here's what it means. It displaces provincial authority. The province is going to have to rewrite its Timber Act. X, Y, Z, and they got to negotiate. So that was the court in 2014. The federal government still hasn't changed their comprehensive claims policy. It's still based on the extinguishment of Aboriginal rights and title instead of the recognition. Compensation for past infringements are still not a part of that policy. Uh, there, I mean, there's a litany of, of, of problems there. So that sort of all that is by way of background to the land question today for Algonquin people because it's still unresolved in Algonquin territory. Um, in 19, the 1980s, the Algonquins of Golden Lake, as they were then known, Pickwalkin again, they filed uh, a notice of claim with Ontario and Canada. Uh, after OCA, Ontario agreed to negotiate it, and the year after that, Canada joined the negotiations. So they've been in negotiations since 1992. They've just announced uh, that they've got an agreement in principle, which is going to a vote at the end of February 2016. Um, in Quebec, there are still no negotiations uh, for the land issue. And as I, I, I think I explained before, but I really want to highlight this, I had a section I was going to do and I didn't. Um, the provincial boundary. Algonquin people never had that boundary. They're, they're, their boundaries were based on watersheds, and many of the First Nations, Algonquin First Nations, their territories on both sides of the border. So, Temiskaming, for instance, half their territory is in Quebec, half their territory is in Ontario. Eagle Village First Nation, also known as Kippewa, they have a reserve near Temiskaming South and Kippewa Village, but they had to move up from Mattawa because they were dispossessed in the 1880s. About 60% of their traditional territory is in Ontario. It's covered by the Algonquins of Ontario claim, but they aren't a party to it. They haven't been consulted. They aren't a party to it. And their lands, 60% of their lands, stand to be um, extinguished through this other land claims process. This is a comprehensive land claims process. Well. Yes, that's right. So, yeah, so, well, it's not a position. It's a reality that, that, that there's issues there of overlap that aren't being dealt with, right? And, and that's creating some contention, needless to say. Um, Canada and Ontario seem to be unable to cope with the realities, the historical realities. Um, what they would like to see is there's one claim for the Ontario side, there's one claim for the Quebec side, and never the twain shall meet. But it doesn't fit the historical reality or the facts. 
And what we find from the courts is that they've said consistently is, you have to establish the facts. What are the facts of the situation? And the negotiations need to reflect those facts. So that's one of the issues that, that remains outstanding is the territorial issue, how you address overlapping and interlinked claims. Um, because there's been so much dispossession in the Ottawa Valley, there's been a lot of, I call it churn over the years. Um, traditional bands were displaced. Some of them were superseded by other communities. Some of communities of today are successors of prior bands that no longer exist. But it's, it, you're able to sort it all out. Certainly for the communities I work with, which is Barrier Lake, Wolf Lake, Tomaskaming, Eagle Village, we've been able to sort a lot of that out by doing the research and doing proper, proper research and mapping and, and, and genealogy. In any event, um, Certainly, in the Ottawa Valley, the land question, the Aboriginal title question, still remains unresolved today. Um, it's good to see negotiations, but the negotiations need to re reflect the realities. And I think that it's going to take a number of years until these issues are resolved. Um, it may take more court cases. The new government, they've... they've um, they said a lot of the right things. I think, and it's historic that they, they've named a First Nation person to be the Attorney General, Minister of Justice. Um, a lot of people have high hopes, but I've seen before where there's been very high expectations that have been dashed once you come face to face with the political and economic realities. Um, I did a, a, a similar talk to this in, in Temiskaming last month to all the mayors and, and the Chamber of Commerce for Temiskaming, New Liskert, and that area on both sides, Ontario-Quebec border, and because and, you know, they hear land claims, they think, oh, we're going to get evicted, do the, do, you know, do the Indians want to throw us out of our homes, and you know, you get all this stuff. So I was explaining to them much of what I explained to you tonight, and what I told them was, is you got to realize something. These other governments took the pie, and they divided it all up among them and their friends. They didn't leave any for the people that were here first. Now what the courts have said is, these guys deserve a piece of the pie, and you guys have divided, you're going to have to give up some of that pie. You know, and, and the governments, they say, well, we're, we're austerity, we're in deficit, so it's like, you know, they took all the money, they went and had a party, and they come back and say, well, I'm broke now, I know I borrowed money from you, but, and that's the, you know, you can't say that. Anyway, um, I, I'm sure I've gone on longer than I should have. But you guys said you wanted it, so. <laughs> <laughs>